Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Citizen Dame, the podcast where we love people and we love films and we like talking about people in films. So that's what we're going to do today. I am Lauren Humphreys Brooks. <laughs> With me, as always, is Karen Peterson. Hello, Karen. Hello. How are you this fine morning, week, day? I know I say it a lot, but oh my gosh, I'm so tired. <laughs> This week in particular has been exhausting and it was only half a week. So, you know, it's it, just you two can, graduations. I, I was gonna say you've been busy. I I, yeah. I mean I've I I creep on your Instagram every once in a while. I'm just like <laughs> she's been doing a lot of stuff. Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, my my little tiny baby nephew graduated from high school. Oh, he no. broke his promise to me that he made when he was four, when he promised he wouldn't grow up. And he did. He went and grew up. And uh, now he's a high school graduate and he's heading off to college in the fall. And it's so weird so far. So uh, it's a little emotional, but his graduation was this week. And then I work at a, I work at a college and our graduation was also this week. And I actually, because of leadership role that I have at at work, um, I had to participate in the graduation for the first time. Normally I sit in the back and just enjoy watching every the back of everybody's heads um this time i got to see the whole crowd so it was it was fun but it was a really long week mm-hmm. graduations generally no matter how you're involved in them even if you're just an observer graduations are like tiring yeah all of those people yeah, and <laughs> yeah well so it's funny because i actually had to speak um at ours and <laughs> what's funny about that is that um I ended up in this place because like, not because of anything that I did. It was because I took over for someone who was out on medical leave, uh, who was taking over for someone who was out on medical leave. So it was like, it just kind of fell to me. So the very first time I ever spoke at a graduation was not because of my own accomplishments or anything that I've done in my career or life. It was just because I was the next one available. Um, but when everyone was asking me about like my my speech and stuff, I was just like, it is very short. It is 400 words. <laughs> I'm just like in and out <laughs> because nobody wants to hear from me. Nobody cares. I, I was well, I was going to say you're probably a hero because no, because the worst thing about graduations is how long they take. Yeah. Yeah. And and the number of people that talk and they always say the same things. Everything. So you're probably probably you're everyone's favorite. You're just like, oh, thank <laughs> God. She like she just got up there. She spoke and she left. Period. It's great. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. So, but the whole thing, because our college president at rehearsal that morning, he was just like, my goal is an hour and 20 minutes. And we're like, okay, let's see if we can do this. And it was an hour and 32 or something like that. So it was pretty darn close. That's a short graduation. That is. That's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. And we had, we had over 800 graduates and I think we had about 450 that actually walked. So mm-hmm. it was cool. Yeah, but I 
have spent the last two days just on my couch watching movies. So, <laughs> well, it could be worse. Recover. Could it, be worse, definitely. So true. <laughs> so this week we have we have a couple of things to talk about before we get to our our main um, main topic for today, which I am personally incredibly excited about. Um, <laughs> but before we get to it, uh, we did have a comment from Michelle who mentioned as as we mentioned um, the film "Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret" last week. Um, and so Michelle is one of our patrons, and she said, "Sorry if you already discussed uh, if you already discussed, but after you mentioned the wonderful movie, "Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret." I wonder if both of you have seen the Judy Bloom documentary on Amazon Prime. And also, did you catch the Judy Bloom cameo in the movie? So I have not seen the documentary yet. I've heard very good things about it. My parents have seen it, like numerous people. I just have not gotten to it. So I, I apologize for that. I did love, as I think I mentioned uh, the in our last episode, I loved Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. It's not, it wasn't one of those books that I grew up with. Like Judy Bloom just wasn't on my radar when I was a kid for whatever reason. Um, but watching the film, you know, for a film that is, that was made, you know, recently, but is set in the 1970s based on a book that's set in the 1970s, it felt so real to like the kinds of relationships you have as an adolescent, um, and the confusion of being that a girl of that age and being a kid, but also kind of pushing into teenagerdom and having crushes and all of those complicated things. And then also the relationships with your parents, all of those things, it works so well and it portrays it so well in a very realistic way. I thought, um, Karen, have you seen the documentary? Did you want to speak to that? I did. I actually saw it at Sundance. Um, and it's one of the ones that I never got a chance to review. Um, but I really liked it a lot. It's so good. It's um, it's definitely done as kind of one of those talking heads style documentaries, but it does a good job of the filmmakers incorporated a lot of uh, like kind of a, a just a really great cross section of women. And you hear from Judy Bloom directly herself talking about uh, her own telling her own story, talking about the um, the reception of her books, um, good and bad. And, um, so it's, just, it's, it's fascinating to hear her share that from her own perspective, but then also having this interwoven with hearing from women who grew up with her books, like I did, um, and, and kind of having the chance to also share what her, what her books meant to them as she's talking about what they meant to her. So it's, I think it's a great documentary. I think they did a really good job with it. And um, I think seeing that um, right alongside, are you there? God, it's me, Margaret is, is a really good double feature actually. Well, and it's so, it's like I say, so I, I didn't really grow up with Judy Bloom's books in any meaningful way, but it's good to see that she's getting so much acknowledgement right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so getting the the um so this this particular film, but also this the fact that women are telling their own coming of age stories, right? And she was very much a pioneer in that. Yeah. Um, and and kind of writing seriously and honestly about the way that girls grow up and the experiences that that you go through as an adolescent girl um and so often i mean we've talked about it before but so often these stories are not told by women they're told by men and or they're told through some kind of a male lens we have so many coming of age stories about boys 
mm-hmm. and comparatively very few about women. And even some of the ones, one of the the immediate references that I had in watching Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret was eighth grade. Cause it's, and now the, these girls are slightly younger in Are You There, God, but it's still like a similar, a similar narrative, right? And I, a lot of people like eighth grade. A lot of women have said that, you know, really spoke to them, et cetera. It completely did not speak to me at all. And the reason part of that was, was that it felt like it was someone from the outside looking in. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Not, I felt the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not, not really representing the true experience of what it is to be a, a, an adolescent girl. And we all went through different experiences, obviously, but it felt very male. And when I had to listen, sorry, to a bunch of men talk about how it was the most frightening horror film of the year, I was just like, (laughs) fuck you. Well, and and that's the thing, like, you know, so there's there's that portrayal of the of the older the older guy who like that she has a crush on and that, you know, kind of there's there's a really uncomfortable scene in the car and all of that. But it it it's and again, not saying that girls don't that doesn't happen to girls. And that's not an experience that some girls have. But the problem with it is that it felt like, you know, isn't it, isn't being an adolescent girl terrifying? It's just like, mm-hmm. well, no, this reads more like a, a boy, a man who is afraid of adolescent girls and never, and was trying to understand them. I think it's coming from a good place. Yeah. But doesn't really understand them or isn't real because he can't, you know, it's something he's not, that isn't a part of his experience. Mm-hmm. And the difference with Are You There, God? And there are difficult things that happen in Are You There, God? But all of them feel very true. And they feel like they're coming from a space, from a writer, from a director, from performers who truly understand the experience. And, you know, the whole thing about whether or not you have a bra and when you get your period and all of the things that are connected to that. I didn't have exactly that experience, but going through, but like watching some of that, just like, yep, yep, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. This is the way that girls talk to each other. This is the, you know, the, the kind of peer pressure that you feel kind of trying to figure out what, what you're doing and what the meaning of what you're doing is. Um, It felt far more realistic and far more true to my own experience as, you know, having been an adolescent girl once upon a time. Yeah. Something else, and maybe I, maybe I've mentioned this when we were talking about it before, but something else that I really loved about the film was that you get, even though it's very much centered on Margaret and her group of friends, um, you also get these beautiful moments of seeing mom and grandma and their experiences too, and how coming of age happens at every age, you know, and how, um, you know, no matter where you're at in life, there's always more to learn about yourself and more to more to learn about how to be yourself in the world that we live in. And I just I I think that's really beautiful, too. Yeah, yeah, th- I, I I absolutely agree with that. It, and you've got those each kind of generation of woman and what she's experiencing. It's very much filtered through them. It's the focus is not boys, really. The focus is not men. Um, it's not about, you know, even though boys are involved, it isn't really about the boys. It really is about the women. It it is about the girls and how they relate to each other and what they expect of each other and of themselves and all of those things. Um, and, and we don't, we don't see that enough either in literature, I think, or in, um, or certainly not in film. Yeah, definitely. 
So it's good to see that. I missed the Judy Bloom cameo. Did you note the the Judy Bloom cameo in the film? She's one of the neighbors walking the dog. Really? Mm-hmm. Yep. Guess you got to go see it again. I do. <laughs> I do. Well, I have a feeling that this is going to be one I'm going to get on like Blu-ray and just put it to my rotation of yeah. movies that make me feel happy about the world. That's the other thing. It's a very positive film, even though there are all of these complications and issues and like all of the shit that goes along with being um whatever 12 13 years old mm-hmm. there it is a happy film it's ultimately a positive one it's a positive look at the experiences of these girls yeah i will say so i was talking to someone the other day she and her husband took their 10 year old to see it and um my my friend was telling me that uh yeah they had to take her out twice because she was like the daughter because she was so uncomfortable <laughs> and I don't know which scenes but there was something that happened that she was just so uncomfortable she was like I just need a minute <laughs> so that is how realistic it is <laughs> well I would be a difficult film to watch if you were that age like, yeah, yeah, you'd be like absolutely. oh no oh god or especially or, with your parents <laughs> yeah or if you're approaching that age also we're just like well I haven't had my period yet oh no oh god mm-hmm. Like, is it this? It's, yeah. yep. Being being a being a girl, being a cisgender girl at at, at and that at that age is just it's bizarre. Like, mm-hmm. it is an experience. It's the best and the worst thing. It really is. <laughs> it's very confusing. Mm-hmm. Um. So speaking of confusion, no. <laughs> <laughs> So let's let's move on to the the main topic. Uh, thank you, Michelle, by the way, for the comment. Um, I'm definitely going to get to watch the the Judy Bloom documentary, which is on Amazon Prime. And I believe Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret is still in theaters. So yes, definitely, if you have not seen it, try to check it out. Uh, I am certain that it's going to be available um, also then to rent before long. So it is a fantastic film. Very worth yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, so let's now move on. Some whiplash. <laughs> <laughs> um representative of the cultural zeitgeist i don't know (laughs) um moving on to vincent price it is vincent price it is literally vincent price's birthday today the day that we are recording uh it will not be his birthday any longer by the time you are listening to this episode but still it is always a good time to talk about Vincent Price. As Karen expressed, she could not believe that we had not done an episode on Vincent Price before, even though we have talked about a number of his films. Um, and and the reason for this is, first of all, he's wonderful. Vincent Price is the best. I love him. Uh, I Every year I seem to go through a Vincent Price phase where I'm just <laughs> like, I'm just going to watch a whole bunch of Vincent Price movies. I've seen most of these films numerous times. Um, I don't think it qualifies as a phase anymore. <laughs> but it's like, it's like there's a period in, usually around this time, actually. So maybe I just naturally know that it's his birthday is coming up. Um, that I just immediately go to like, I need to watch a bunch of Vincent Price movies for some reason. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> it is his birthday. It is also the birthday of Christopher Lee today. So Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing and Vincent Price were all... Uh, Peter Cushing was born on the 26th, Vincent Price and Christopher Lee were born on the 27th, different years. But um, I think that it's wonderful that these three men who were good friends in real life uh, and are like such iconic horror movie figures were all born so close together. I just love that. That is great. (laughs) 
So we're going to talk about a whole bunch of things about Price, but um, some of the things that I, I think we need to note about him is that, you know, he was active throughout the 1930s and the 1940s. His primary roles were as a character actor. So we talked uh, about the about Lara in 1944, where he plays kind of the second male lead. Um, and he was usually playing, you know, kind of those secondary characters, sometimes playing villains. Um, and but edged into the horror genre fairly early on. So his uh, his earliest horror film is Tower of London, which is 1939. He is not the villain in Tower of London. And then the next year he plays the Invisible Man in The Invisible Man Returns. And so that I think technically is his very, very first like leading horror role. And he's off screen for most of it. And you just hear his voice. Uh, because he's the invisible man. You don't actually see him for most of the film. Um, but it's interesting. But all you need is his voice. And I, well, and that's true. It's interesting because, you know, the, the original invisible man is played by Claude Rains, who has such a distinctive voice. And then Price comes back and, and plays the, the invisible man in the next film and different character. Um, and, and again, that distinctive voice, that voice that, and we're going to talk about this a little more, um, that voice that is just so before we started recording, I was trying to figure out how to to kind of encapsulate the way that he talks because it's very cultured. It's a very intelligent voice. It's almost a little high high pitched or some there's something a, a little bit nasal, I guess, about the way that he speaks. Um, he was originally from, I believe, St. Louis. And he, but he went to finishing, he, not to finishing school, he went to prep school, things like that. He went to Yale, his uh, alma mater was late, was Yale. Um, so he comes from a very kind of cultured and upper-class background. And that definitely comes through, I think, in his performances and his voice in particular is just, you know, when he's on the screen, you can hear him, like his voiceover, you don't have to see his face. You just immediately, like, that's Vincent Price. And he does so much of his acting through his vocalization. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's like this, this crispness to his voice that a lot of people don't have. That's a good um, description. Yeah. It's yeah. It's, it's so immediately recognizable. Yeah. It's yeah. And, and it makes sense. He did a lot of radio, particularly in the 1940s and fifties. Um, he starred as I think the shadow I don't completely that remember. That sounds right. He did he did a number of radio programs. I think he started as The Shadow. He he did um a whole bunch of like smaller television roles as well. Um but so and then uh, in the in his later years he also, you know, he did voices for um famously in The Great Mouse Detective where he plays mm-hmm. the villain and again that that constant he did voiceover and then of course he is also the best part of Thriller the music video mm-hmm. and the song. Um, and as soon as you get to the thriller rap, I mean, it it's again, that distinction, like you just know, it's like, that's Vincent Price. Yeah. He just, he just has like, his voice sounds like a, a movie villain, but like one that you want to trust, <laughs> even though you know you shouldn't. It's this like very beguiling sense to his voice. And that's, I think why it works so well in that thriller song. That thriller song that sounds so dismissive. <laughs> in one of the best selling singles of all time, Thriller. Um, but I think that's why it, it's such a, a good fit for that 
for that song. Yeah, and and at that point, obviously, he was that's what he was known for. He was known for being the horror movie villain, like the horror mm-hmm. icon, yeah. um, which wasn't true, obviously, when he was a young man. But uh, but yeah, it, the, he he relies a great deal on his voice throughout all of his roles. The way that he delivers lines, um, it's it's very one of my favorite Vincent Price films, and we talked about this before. But one of my favorite ones is Theater of Blood. Um, which is quite late in his career and which in which he plays like opposite Diana Rigg. And it's basically like the two of them overacting Shakespeare for, you know, two hours. And it's fantastic. But it's it is that like when you listen to him actually doing Shakespeare and he's he's doing a hammy version of, of Shakespeare. But you can feel kind of the cadence that he's relying on. He was originally a stage actor. That's where he started. I think one of the reasons why he's so effective as a character actor is not because he doesn't come in and like steal the film, but he, you look forward to seeing him, even if he never became a a leading man in terms of the, the horror genre as a character actor, he is so enjoyable to watch and he's so enjoyable to listen to. Um, That's, you know, I, I always joke about films like Lara and Leave Her to Heaven and some of the other ones that he did a, as a younger man. It's almost unbelievable that any woman would like go for kind of the, the boring, handsome dude when you've got Vincent Price right there. I don't understand. It. <laughs> yeah, it's like, why? doesn't seem real. <laughs> Especially because these guys are so boring. Well, that's the thing. And, uh, and a lot of the time he really is playing against actors that are handsome but dull <laughs> like um and i one of the best examples of that is actually a film that was really the first time he played the true villain in a kind of horror adjacent film and that's dragon wick in 1946 and that's the point at which he he did other noir roles um in the later 40s but that's the point at which you really begin to identify him with the horror genre i think and one of the things with Dragonwick is that he's he's basically like a Rochester character, um, mm. only on the eviler side. <laughs> but the I don't even remember who the other actor is that eventually gets the girl. But he's the dullest man on the planet. <laughs> like, and that's why I can't remember because I cannot re- like he was not a particularly interesting actor. But I think that that's one of the things that kind of elevates Price, particularly when you get into his horror roles, is that you. Even when he's evil, you like him. You want to be in the same space with him. You want to watch him. Um, you completely buy why these women would get seduced by him or um, why they would be like, this is a really bad idea, but he is hot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and he, he's just, he goes, so he goes through this period in the late 40s and the early 50s where he's basically playing those kinds of roles. I think, one of the other films that we talked about uh, a while ago was His Kind of Woman, which Price just basically steals the entire film from Robert Mitchum. <laughs> and <laughs> and I don't think he even intends to. It's just more like, oh, well, this is a nice little macho film noir you have here. It would be a shame if someone were to camp it up. <laughs> and and he just walks off with it. And And it's impossible to watch that film and not be like, the star of this movie is Vincent Price. Robert Mitchum is in the star. Jane Russell is in the star. It's Vincent Price. <laughs> Even when he has small roles, he manages to just steal the show so much of the time, like pretty much every time. 
Exactly. His um so he did a number of comedic roles as well. He plays kind of the villain in a film called Champagne for Caesar, which also stars Ronald Coleman, uh, and and in in which Price is just basically playing a very campy bad guy who like runs a, a major corporation. And he's hilarious. Like he it it was supposedly one of his favorite roles. He like there's there's an entire scene where he walks around with a parrot perched on his head and like has a conversation with the parrot. It is so bizarre. And the rest of the film is not great, to be honest, (laughs) but he elevates it. Like and again, it's one of those where I don't think he's intending to. I don't think that this is him being like, I'm a better actor or I'm more important. But he just steals the film away from Ronald Coleman because he gets to do all of the fun stuff. Um, And I think that's one of the things that then as we get into the 1950s, that then feeds into um, uh, his roles as a horror icon. Because he does get to be, very often he gets to be both the antagonist and the protagonist. And he also, very like Roger Corman was very intelligent about the way that he used Price. He didn't, he set Price up against uh, actors and, and, um, and performers who are, dull like a lot of the like if i say to you you know who else was in the pit and the pendulum you might say barbara Steele, but who else like who is the lead who is the like romantic hero in the pit and the pendulum (laughs) it's vincent price (laughs) (laughs) yeah no i i know it's like um john carr right john carr yeah (laughs) (laughs) who's hideously miscast um but, but so let's talk about that in a minute. One of the reasons why Price kind of got funneled into more and more horror roles and why he began doing films like the Corman films, et cetera, was in, in part because he was actually graylisted during the McCarthy era. So he wasn't fully blacklisted. He wasn't, you know, completely anathema in Hollywood. But um, because he had very, very liberal leanings, he had a lot of liberal friends, um he was it, it essentially throughout the 1950s it was it was getting harder and harder for him to get work uh and it, it price is an interesting figure because he actually expressed a great deal of admiration for the nazis um back in the 1930s and then when he came back to the united states he became friends with a lot of intellectuals in court, including dorothy parker uh in new york and they basically re-educated him <laughs> where he like moved, he he became a very prominent anti-fascist. Um, and to to the point that he was gray listed during the McCarthy era. And then later on, he was a major proponent of gay rights, a major proponent of civil rights, um, very, very liberal, very like, and very um unapologetic about that. And I think that he's a great example, actually, of someone who had terrible views when he was young and actually listened and learned and changed his his perspective. And I love the fact that that then leads into his horror career. I like the kind of confluence there because he's so iconic as a horror as like a horror film actor. And none of that would have happened if he hadn't become this like major liberal. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we are glad for both. So let's start with uh, House on Haunted Hill, which you got. Is this the first time you'd seen House on Haunted Hill or have you seen? Oh, it no, I, I've seen it a bunch of times. I actually okay. didn't I didn't get around to rewatching it this week, but I've seen it so many times. 
So House on Haunted Hills, 1959. Um, it's directed by William Castle. And it's the the best way to describe William Castle films, I think, are to say that they're amusement park rides. They're the kind of thing like this is very much like stepping into a haunted house ride at Disney World. Would Martin or Scorsese like agree with you? <laughs> uh, probably. I, I, but I think that that's that's the intention of yeah. House on Haunted Hill. That's the intention of most of Castle's films. So Castle was really well known for gimmicks, right? So using um, in the Tingler, which also starred Vincent Price. Uh, wiring up seats to give people my like moderate electric shocks uh <laughs> in periods of in, in like parts of the film like actually using the theater itself as part of the movie so in with house on haunted hill some of the um theatrical exhibitions for it they would have they would like wire up a skeleton to fly through the theater at like certain points in the film <laughs> and and it was so it, it's it is very much intended to be like an amusement park this is this is you know this is a carnival atmosphere kind of thing um but i think that this one uses prices glee and love for the horror genre in a really effective way he's having so much fun just he's the villain technically um but also not like he's both ends. <laughs> uh, but but he like gets to you know do things like give everybody guns with their in in like little coffins, and he he really indulges I think in that kind of like you say that that cultured nasty snarkiness basically. Yeah, yeah. Well, his his character is this eccentric millionaire and he just embraces that like you can really just kind of feel him thinking if i were an eccentric millionaire mm -hmm. what kind of shit would i do to people and that's what you get in this movie <laughs> and it's great yeah so so the setup is that um is that he is he's an eccentric millionaire who invites a whole bunch of people including a couple people who are like his employees uh and um journalists etc to his house for a murder mystery party basically that is it's actually a house that he has rented for the purpose it's supposed to be haunted and like everybody people who who stay there all die horrible horrible deaths and the whole thing is if you are able to spend the night in this house um without dying obviously you get $10,000. Mm -hmm. He is married to Annabelle, played by Carol Omart, who is deliciously nasty. Like she is one of the mm -hmm. meanest people on screen. <laughs> yep. um, and basically he is convinced that she has been trying to kill him multiple times. They have a fantastic conversation where, you know, he, he talks about, think of all the fun we had when you tried to poison me. <laughs> And and she thinks that he's trying to kill her. So there's this back and forth of like almost a weird flirtation going on between the two of them about like, oh, it was so great when we tried to murder each other. Let's see if it happens again. Um, and it's then, like what brings them together? What keeps it, them together? It is, exactly. <laughs> and then throughout the night, horrifying things happen. There are secret passages and skeletons and a vat of acid in the basement for some reason. Um, one of my favorite parts of the film is is that where it's like, oh, here's the acid vat that we have. 
uh, and it's just it's not even covered. It's just this open pit of full like of acid, bubbly, burning acid. <laughs> just like so, you know, there that is yeah. like a normal house. Um, it's it's a delightful film. I, apparently, it, it was playing off of uh, the fact that the haunting of Hill House, the book, had been released earlier that year. And yeah. so the name of the the film and the use of like this, this whole we're going to stay the night in a haunted house kind of thing was very much um, kind of trying to draw in the audience based on that. Right. Even though it is not the same story because that movie came out the next year. Yep. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I really like House on Haunted Hill. This one is so much better than the remake from like 1999, although that one has its its joys as well. I don't think that one is a completely unwatchable movie, but it doesn't hold a candle to the 1959. And so much of the reason for that is Vincent Price just getting to be his just devious, but hilarious. And like, he just has so much joy. And even in movies where he plays the the biggest antagonist, he just he has so much fun. And that's that's mm-hmm. what this movie is. It's just him getting to just gleefully be a little bit diabolical and a little bit just weird. And he just, he <laughs> relishes in that. <laughs> he does. Well, a fa- one of my favorite quotes from him, this one gets quoted a lot, but I think that it's a good kind of summation of exactly that, of that he's enjoying himself a lot. Um, and he takes his role seriously. Like, I, I don't think it, I, there's one of the wonderful things about him is that it, there's never a point where you feel like he's making fun of the part itself. He right. doesn't think that the movie is stupid. He doesn't think that the movie is low budget. He's, he's not going like, I'm better than this at any point. He's like, this is great. I want to do this more. I'm having so much fun doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But like so- he can take a bad movie and turn it into something really entertaining and and good just because he doesn't treat it like it's a bad movie. Well, and I th- exactly, yeah, I think that there the people like William Castle and Roger Corman recognized that mm-hmm. um, because uh, these films are like a lot of the horror films that he did are low budget. They are, you know, particularly the William Castle films are visibly low budget. Sometimes <laughs> you've got like you know plastic skeletons, literally. Um, sometimes the the effects are really good, and I think we should talk about that with the Corman films. But um, but they're, they're these are low budget movies. These are made, you know, very seldom do you have a list stars appearing in them. Although every once in a while you do, particularly as you get into the nineteen sixties and things are fragmenting in other ways in Hollywood. Um, but Price never underrates those things and i think that the directors that used him the best really recognize that yeah you know who oh sorry no go on well i was gonna say you know who who i think of now as sort of a modern day equivalent with less culture um is nicholas cage actually because he he goes into he goes into all of his films the same way like no matter how ridiculous the movie is he gives it 100 percent and he's not going to ever treat it like it's a low budget movie that he's just doing because he needs a paycheck. Yeah, exactly. He's they're not phoning it in. I think that's a good comparison, definitely. Um, so the the quote that I wanted to mention from Price was that uh, I sometimes feel that I'm impersonating the dark unconscious of the whole human race. I know this sounds sick, but I love it. 
And <laughs> I, I think that that kind of encapsulates that glee that you see in a lot of his roles, that he's he recognizes that there's a lot of darkness going into this, but it's it's fun a lot of the time. This is a fun kind of darkness. It's fun to get to play these parts. It's fun to, you know, kind of bring some of these repressions, et cetera, to the light and mm-hmm. and play with them and get to have a good time with them. Right. And make them maybe slightly less scary in some ways. Yeah. You know, that's actually a good point, because some of the like I was when I was watching um, uh, which one was it? I guess the bat. There's a couple of parts where it's like it it gets kind of creepy, especially, you know, when you have women, we'll talk about it more in a minute, but when you have women alone in a house together and they're afraid, and then it would like cut to Vincent Price and it's like, okay, all right, this is funny. I can handle this. You know, he like <laughs> through through a lot of his movies where other people would just want to make it scary and diabolical. He's like, let's have a little bit of fun here. And that's, it makes it a lot, a lot less um, terrifying, but still, still good and still fun. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a good point. He's reassuring in some ways. And I think some of that is because of the iconic status of, of him that he's so distinctive. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, like when you see him in films like the bat, he is and and there's some question throughout you know part of the bat about who is the actual bad guy right yeah it's um, a it. um but he is reassuring you're just like this is fun because vincent price is here mm-hmm. this is gonna everything's gonna be okay even if people get murdered because vincent price is here <laughs> even if he's the one doing it it's all right <laughs> Um, well, and and I think we're not going to talk about them in depth, particularly, but I think that's one of the distressing things about some of his his much later films, um, particularly The Witchfinder General, which he gives a fantastic performance in it. It is a it is a disturbing movie to me. Um, and I think part of that is because it doesn't it takes itself too seriously in a lot of ways. It doesn't allow for that kind of archness and that humor to come through in the same way. And it becomes much nastier as a result. He he stops being such a reassuring figure. Um, and maybe that's a good thing in some ways, but um, but that's one of the, the things that, the few films that he did where he is truly evil, like really, really evil. In Witchfinder General, he's very evil. Um, there's there's this sense that you know we're not playing anymore almost and i think a lot of his most successful roles you do get that sense this is a game we're playing we're having fun with this um that doesn't mean that you know we're not going to treat it as an important film but we're also going to have a good time so let's talk about the bat okay what are your thoughts about the bat uh i I liked it. I thought it was a lot of fun. Um, it is sort of, I, I, I don't know that I would have necessarily found it scary at all if I didn't live alone, but there are certain <laughs> things <laughs> that were like, um, and I live in like a 400 square foot studio apartment, but still, you know, I'm not like in this big Gothic mansion, but there are just certain things about the way that it is shot. And, um, and stage where it's 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 like creepy but in a fun way i guess because um the well first of all the police are completely inept (laughs) throughout the movie it's like how do they not see that there's a hole in the window um (laughs) 
<laughs> stuff like that but yeah so it's this cat burglar basically who's known as the bat well no he's not a cat burglar he's a murderer but there's this is all happening at the time that someone is breaking into this house and this guy who runs the bank has just been murdered or no he died um there's just a lot happening all at once and uh it kind of culminates around this house that this um this writer played by agnes moorhead has just rented and everyone tells her she should leave everyone thinks that she should not stay there but she's just like whatever i'm gonna and um that almost is a bad thing for her (laughs) but uh yeah i think it's a i think it's a really fun movie it's interesting there were certain things that i was like oh i've seen this referenced in other movies and Uh didn't ever know that that was the case so well and i one of the things i really like about the bat is is act is agnes moorhead and is Mm -hmm. agnes moorhead and her um like her friend her companion right yeah the two of them who are just like like particularly Agnes Moore is just like no I'm not leaving I'm not leaving just because this guy is like oh he's gonna murder me it's just like I'm totally go. scared but I'm gonna stay yeah <laughs> and I really like that because so often in films from this period we get like you know the women who are like no I'm not good they're like kind of wilting and they're like oh I'm so scared it's so mm-hmm. scary like mm-hmm. and she's just like I don't like this shit what the fuck is happening here <laughs> yeah well and and run away yeah because the both of the women are like that like they're both scared but neither of them is gonna leave and they're not gonna leave each other um and but but yeah they're they're both just like whatever we're just gonna deal with this you know i love it i love it (laughs) so and then you and then you've got vincent price added to that who (laughs) um for part of the film it's not quite clear like is he the is he the bad is he the bad guy right well there's or, all these clues that it's it's him yeah but, um yeah but and and i th- he balances things out very well it's one of his less campy roles like he's not as sort of in in many ways he cedes ground to to agnes moorhead and and to others so he's less of the big star of the film but his again that that presence it it reminds me in a lot of ways of the William Castle films. I always think that the Bat is directed by William Castle, even though it's not, um, because it does have that kind of. It's very much a constructed atmosphere. So it's like the creepy old house, and there's a murderer prowling around, and he's known as the Bat for some reason, <laughs> um, and and all of those he's things killed people with rabid bats. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And and so there's there's that edge of camp to it that at the same time allows it to be very creepy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's actually based on originally on a novel and then on a play. And then there's a, a film from the 1920s. So it's very much in the old dark house kind of tradition. Yeah. Uh, and it's interesting then to kind of move that into the 1950s, the 1960s, where you do have this, you know, lady writer who's I think basically modeled off of Agatha Christie uh who is just not taking any shit about this <laughs> and it's just like no i've written these things this is i i'm not uh, what the hell is happening <laughs> yeah like there's the part where she pulls a gun out and and i think it's the cop asks her if she knows how to use it and she's like there's a gun in every one of my books yes i know what i'm doing <laughs> <laughs> well and the the cops being so inept i think feeds into that as well because yeah, she's yeah. like well i'm go- just gonna have to do it myself then uh-huh. yeah which of I mean, I don't, I don't want to spoil it, but um, there are reasons. Anyway, so, uh, 
Yeah, no, I, I, I thought it was a lot of fun. And I, I think that, um, yeah, to your point, I think that Vincent Price in this is great, but I think that the, the, the levity, I guess, more, more comes from Agnes Moorhead than from him. Yeah. Which is kind of rare. And it's, it's, uh, it speaks a lot to her that she has the screen presence to take over from him when so many people tried and failed. (laughs) (laughs) And they have a few scenes together that are just wonderful. Like the, there's something I, it might be because one of the things I moving out from this a little bit, one of the things I really like is where you get kind of B films. And this is a B film where you have character actors playing the leads. And that's essentially what the bat is. It is a film full of character actors. There is no one who is like a leading man or a leading lady. Right. Mm -hmm. And, but because of that, it actually plays really, really well. You get all of these actors who are used to playing playing the second lead basically um and who are getting to kind of be more in the spotlight and they're all sort of having more fun together um yeah. so you don't get the kind of prizing of one or the other of them uh in in the same way that you do more in a-list films mm-hmm. so and so funnily enough both the bat and house on haunted hill are released in uh 1959 1960 marks the first film that Vincent Price did with Roger Corman, this, thus beginning an eight-film run. They did eight films together, <laughs> uh, all of which are just fucking delightful. If you haven't seen their films together, see them. Some of them are available on on various streaming platforms. Some of them aren't. It can be difficult to find some of these. I happen to own most of them uh, on, on Blu-ray. Uh, including there's a wonderful collection of Vincent Price films uh, that spans three volumes and is not all of the films that he did with Corman. There are a whole bunch of different ones mixed in, but um, very, very worth spending the money if you dig Vincent Price as I do. We won't talk too much about House of Usher, but House of Usher is really the first film that like Corman gets to use Price as a lead. And one of the things that I like in, in House of Usher is that he... Price is the villain in a lot of ways. But this is where I think he he slides more into the protagonist-antagonist element. That he's almost both. <laughs> and you've got a leading man played by um, Mark Damon, who is boring as hell. He's just basically the pretty boy leading man, who's mostly there to kind of keep the plot moving. Because what, are, what we're really interested in is uh, Madeline Usher and her brother Roderick, played by Vincent Price, um, Madeline is supposed to be engaged uh, to be married to Philip, played by Mark Damon. But her brother is basically like, no, absolutely not. You cannot get married because our family is horribly, horribly cursed. And <laughs> if you have more children, it will be terrible. And anyways, you're going to die soon. <laughs> <laughs> the blonde line needs to be ended. Yeah, essentially. And so there's this, most of the film is actually taken up with Philip being like, but I want to marry Madeline and Roderick being like, you don't understand our family is evil and bad and cursed. (laughs) And also she's going to die. This then involves at one point burial alive, all kinds of things. Which is a frequent theme in their collaborations 
Yes, <laughs> and comes up and, <laughs> and also just comes up a lot in Edgar Allan Poe. Edgar Allan Poe had yeah. a thing about like people being buried alive. They're really yeah. worried about. He was really worried about it. Mm-hmm. Um, which, given the time period, it, it makes sense. But uh, yeah, it was a thing that happened. <laughs> I actually, just watched Premature Burial, which does not have Price in it. Uh, has Ray Milland in it, but the entire thing is about this guy who's like absolutely terrified that he's going to be buried alive. Um, <laughs> and then guess what happens? Uh, <laughs> let me think <laughs> but so so price in this is this is probably one of his most serious performances in a in a corman film he's really um tortured and and i think that that's one of the things that feeds into a number of his performances but in this one in particular he is so tortured by what he he is absolutely convinced that his family the house itself is cursed and evil and bad and Madeline cannot get married because if she gets married, she's going to perpetuate the bloodline and the ushers need to die, basically. And he's he's 100 percent believes this in himself. And he gives such a good performance about being this very tortured man, being this man who quite obviously loves his sister, but does horrible, horrible things as a result of this uh, conviction that he that they are evil they are intrinsically evil and it's it's a fascinating performance from price and you understand why he then wanted to do more films with corman because it uses i think all of the star power all of the qualities that he puts into it um and and develops this really interesting character who is not evil but also does really evil things uh and another quote from price that i think kind of again encapsulates this is i don't play monsters i play men besieged by fate and out for revenge and i think that that's a really good distinction that he is playing these parts that are not about bad people necessarily but they're about people who are caught up in their own psychological hang-ups in their culture etc that are then turned into the bad guy the villain the monster well, and that's that outlook is also part of why he's so good at playing these roles is because if he saw them as monsters, then he would play them much differently. Part of part of the joy of him not seeing them as monsters is that he can give them this bit of mm-hmm. sympathy or um, humanity that, that they need to have in order to feel like characters that you care about, even if they're doing terrible things. Yeah, you you get invested in them. Yeah. Um, and and you feel sorry for them. Like, I think what Roderick Usher, you feel sorry for him. He's sad. And I, I do like Fall of the House of Usher also for getting in. It's, a, it's actually a very serious film in a lot of ways. But it gets in, like, these little jolts of humor and that kind of, that archness that Price brings to it. Um, he has a wonderful line where like the, the, uh, the hero is like, oh, you know, I don't know why you're so upset about this house. Like, come on, stop being, stop being so morbid basically. (laughs) And, and he's just like, oh, you find the house of Usher normal, do you? (laughs) And it's this great line. It's like, Price is just like you, after everything I've told you, you think that this is normal. Okay. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe you should marry my sister. (laughs) <laughs> Maybe you're that weird. But again, that that element the that, you know, 
you were talking about, about not playing these monsters as monsters, seeing them as much more varied and complex individuals, then I think does feed into the the next film that he did with Corman, which was The Pit and the Pendulum. Mm-hmm. Um, so you recently watched this, did you I not? Did. You I did. did. Yeah. So talk about Pit and the Pendulum, Karen. Um, what are your uh, thoughts? So I, when I was first watching it, I was like, I don't really know what to think of this film. Like, I don't know what I'm supposed to be. Um, like I, I'm not sure how to explain it. Um, like I just wasn't sure what to make of it. Is this supposed to be a comedy? Is it supposed to be serious? Um, and I think the answer is a little bit of both. And, uh, but it's, it's that again you got that buried alive thing so you've got this this possibly haunted house where um you have this character who's just racked with guilt over the possible uh the possibility of his wife being buried alive and you've got this really boring brother who shows up <laughs> wanting answers and um i don't really know what to say um <laughs> i I I enjoyed the movie. Like when once it got to kind of where it was going, I was just like, okay, this movie is a lot of fun. It's really good, <laughs> and it only works because of Vincent Price. Well, and that's that's I think you know, yeah, that's that's where it turns on this. It is a much weaker film in a lot of ways, I think, than um, House of Usher, in part because of the performances. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really difficult. You know, you've got someone like Barbara Steele who is. You know, if you if you've seen a lot of films from this period, she shows up all the time. She plays like witches and murderesses. She's uh, you know a major figure in um, these kinds of horror films. She's barely in the Pit and the Bench. <laughs> she's there now. She's really effective when she's there, but she's barely there. Uh, mm-hmm. And and I think that that's part of it. There's way too much time spent with John Kerr, who has yeah. no idea what he's doing. Is incredibly boring. Um, and so, yeah, Price basically has to carry the film for the most part. One of the things I do like about this is the fact that Corman manages to construct a story in which Price is both the, like, this antagonist-protagonist. He's both. Yeah. Um, and it works so well. You believe it when the kind of the switch comes. Um, I, I do think that the final sequence that actually involves the pit and the pendulum <laughs> takes a while to get there but we finally do get there mm-hmm. um is absolutely terrifying like it's so yeah. well structured yeah it is because you have so much happening all at once you've got like you've got um uh names um missing names um <laughs> the characters right. uh uh Nick- nicholas vincent price plays nicholas john Kerr yes. plays francis Thank you. Yeah. So you've got Francis and Nicholas downstairs in this in the pit and you've got Nicholas's sister who is looking for them. There's just so much happening all at once. And then you've got this. (laughs) The pendulum is a swinging axe. (laughs) (laughs) And and at this point, Nicholas is so far gone that it's just like nothing is going to stop this guy. Mm -hmm. And even though. Uh, Francis is so fucking boring. <laughs> you still don't want him to get hacked in two. Um, and and it's just this whole thing of the, the, the sister. You've got the wife who uh, was maybe buried alive, but wasn't. 
but was actually not even dead in the first place. <laughs> and there's just so much at all happening at once. It's really well constructed in building. Like it, it, like you said, it takes a while to get there, but once you get to this scene, which I think what was, what was particularly funny to me was I was expecting it to be more, I thought, I mean, it's an adaptation of Edgar Allan Poe, but, it is not at all the same story. No, <laughs> no not, not at all. Um, and so I was a little bit confused, but when you get to the part where it's like, okay, this is what was really inspired by, by Poe, mm-hmm. then it's just like, oh my gosh, this is, this is really well done. And it actually goes a lot farther than I expected in terms of what you see. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, you don't see someone get cut in half or anything, but, um, but like when you see the, the wife's corpse, and it's like all gross and terrifying. Um, like there's just little images that were just like it, it's 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 effective. It really is, and it's a lot of fun. Yeah, it's it's really it's funny because so much of the film leading up to that is like you say has nothing to do with the post story at all. Has nothing to do with the pit and the pendulum. Like mm-hmm. there is no pit or pendulum for a very long time. Right. But then when you actually get to that, it's so well done. Just like this is legitimately frightening. Mm-hmm. Um, this yeah. is like, actually, this is something that if I saw for the first time on a big screen, I would be like, this is terrifying. <laughs> mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, and, and it, it is so effective, uh, as that one of the things that Corman did so well is, is exactly that is setting up these, again, very low budget films that are very psychologically effective and that use, what budget they do have and the special effects that they have, like the, the whole structure of the pit, the use of kind of the background details and the, the intercutting of like, you know, people trying to stop him from cutting this guy in half and the movement Mm -hmm. of the, the, um, the pendulum and the sounds that it makes all of that. Like it's very simple in a lot of ways, but it's really, really effective. It's edited very well. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is, I mean, obviously price is what makes the movie but so much of that ending sequence relies on really good editing to to give you exactly what you need to see exactly when you need to see it so like you've got you've got um francis on the on this like platform um but that doesn't just like show him getting you know about to be murdered it also cuts to the sister cuts to you know, Vincent Price's face, you know, like just <laughs> glee uh, again, that word glee. Um, Cause that's what it is, you know, and it's just, and then, and there's so like, there's so much, but it, it cuts when it needs to and, and mm-hmm. not, it doesn't, doesn't ever overdo it. Um, but, uh, but it really uses editing to, for exactly the, like exactly the right way. It's really well edited. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's a it's a fantastic film. I love that one. Um, the the other film that I wanted to talk about really briefly, and I don't know if you had a chance to see it, but I think it's interesting in terms of the the elements of comedy. So all of the Corman films have a campy element to them. And so you've got these these moments of arch humor. You've got this. There is this sense of like, you know, we're taking it seriously, but it's a, it's a big, often technicolor ridiculous story right it's very much going hard on the the gothic and the extreme elements of the Poe stories and Mm -hmm. and you get that in both the house of usher and in um the pit and the pendulum and in a lot of others 
one of my favorites is honestly the raven <laughs> which yeah. ha- have you seen the raven i watched that one too yeah <laughs> okay great awesome let's finish up with the raven then uh, <laughs> the raven which is ba- i mean basically according to everyone who is involved with it essentially the producers were like we want you to do a film of the raven the raven is a poem Right. <laughs> it's really hard to do a film of a poem. <laughs> so you're like, okay, so what are we going to do with this? And basically the decision that they made was we can't do this seriously. It's going to be a comedy. Yeah. And so they get, they get, first of all, fantastic cast. They get Vincent Price, um, Peter Laurie and Boris Karloff <laughs> together. You've got Hazel Court, who, again, if you've never seen, if you've seen films from this period, she did a whole bunch of Hammer films. She did a whole bunch of the Corman films. She was like the buxom evil woman, basically, <laughs> in in all these. But she has a lot of good comedic time, and she's very good at doing that, right? Mm-hmm. And a very young Jack Nicholson, who's just kind I, of there. <laughs> I had no idea he was in this. And then he shows up on screen, and I was just like, what? Jack Nicholson, <laughs> what are you doing here? Um, and so that was a all- delightful surprise all of these people together uh and tell this story about like rival magicians <laughs> one of whom gets sorcerers. turned into sorcerers one of whom gets turned into a raven because he got drunk <laughs> and got into a fight with another sorcerer who it turns out has actually like kidnapped or seduced away the wife of dr erasmus craven played by vincent price <laughs> and and they all get together and they're like, we're going to go and we're going to liberate, you know, your wife from the clutches of Boris Karloff. <laughs> and it all ends with this sorcery battle between Vincent Price and Boris Karloff, where they're like casting these weird little spells at each other. Um, <laughs> it's, it, it's there's hilarious. no, it's hilarious. Yes. All right. So yeah, tell me what you thought of this movie, because I've talked to people who hate it. And are like, this is so stupid. And others who are just like, this is the best thing. <laughs> oh, anybody who hates this movie hates joy. There's just no other explanation. Um, I mean, right from the beginning, when you've got this sorcerer just sitting in alone in his house and a raven flies in and starts talking to him. <laughs> and it's like, he's got this voice that is a little bit like, wait a second. I know that voice. I know that voice. <laughs> And then when he turns the raven back into a person, it's Peter Lorre. And it's like, yes, of course it is. And I just, I think that it's, it's such a fun blend of characters um, and character actors that uh, like that was, it was genius casting. And if you're going to do a movie like this and you're going to make it silly, you have to have, um, you have to have names like this in, mm-hmm. in the cast, you know, you can't like you, yeah. And so first of all, they, they nailed it with, with the casting and then when you get into just the craziness that's going on at, at um the other sorcerer's house and you get to experience that amazing fight between the two sorcerers where they're they well they start off with their like laser fingers and <laughs> yeah. trying to trying to like defeat each other and then they're like no 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 let's not do this let's have a duel to the to the death and so it basically it's just them using spells on each other and then just like like just casting it away it's it's so funny it's and it's like so clever um watching 
the things that they come up with and the way that they stop. So it's like one, uh, what's an example? Like when, um, uh, oh my gosh, I totally just lost all the examples. Well, like um, one of them, one of them flies up to the up to the chandelier, yeah. then, and then sinks into the floor. Sinks into the floor, like in a like a sand, like a quicksand, yeah. and then like flies back out. Um, there's like, um, there's a part where where um, Karloff is is throwing like daggers, and he like catches them, but they look like <laughs> it's so funny because they look like cartoon daggers. <laughs> I think they probably are. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So it's just, it's great. It's just entertaining. And then, um, and, and yeah, I I don't know how anybody can hate this movie. It's so funny. It's so funny. (laughs) Well, and, and I think the part of it is probably that, you know, if you're going into this, oh, like Peter Lorre and Vincent Price and Boris Croft, it's like, oh, this is going to be scary. the Raven based on... Edgar Allan Poe. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And and I like the way that, it, I love the way that it opens because yeah, you get like, oh, Vincent Price who's like, okay, we're it's in a creepy castle and there's like <laughs> storm going on and, and like, oh, the raven comes and he's just like, you know, oh, will I ever beheld, behold the radiant maid in whom the angels name Lenore? And then you get Peter Laurie going, how the hell should I know? <laughs> yeah. And that's the moment at which you're like, the the entire film just gets encapsulated there you're like it's suddenly just like okay this is a comedy <laughs> like mm-hmm. if you didn't know it and i like that they set it up like that they they set it up with just like oh you're expecting all of this you know gothic creepiness it's just like and you've got this this sorcerer who's like okay well now you've got to make me this weird potion well you don't have any of this stuff well, like look at my dad's <laughs> laboratory i don't i don't really do this anymore like all of that back and forth between price and um and laurie early on in the film is just so funny mm-hmm. and they're having again it's it's one of those times where you can tell the actors are having fun yeah and because well, they're having fun we argument do. yeah watching him get in an argument with a bird yeah <laughs> is great yeah and then you've got jack nicholson there who just looks so exasperated half the time he's like why are we doing this <laughs> but they said to leave we need to leave oh <laughs> it's so funny the way he just like throws his hands up like oh nobody's listening to me and and he plays uh peter Lurie's son who <laughs> yeah. just like absolutely hates him it's just uh-huh. like well what are you doing here just like well mom told me to bring you home like and <laughs> she's like reason. And and it's just like, oh, you're just like your mother. <laughs> Apparently, Peter Laurie and Jack Nicholson did not actually get along. So some of that like animosity is real. Oh, that's funny. Um, but yeah, it's it's a delightful film. And uh, I, I do enjoy between that and the other film that uh, Laurie Price and, and, Cor- and Karloff did together was uh, The Comedy of Terrors which is also delightful where Price and um, and Lori play uh, Undertaker's Fallen Upon Hard Times. <laughs> uh, and so they decide that they're going to start murdering people, but it's all comedic. It's all like, and actually Boris Karloff honestly steals the show in that one. Yeah. Um, he, he gives a fantastic eulogy as a forgetful drunk and he's just hilarious. Um, but yeah, I, I like in those Corman films, you know, and sometimes they can, some of the later films get a little bit more serious. You've got Mask of the Red Death, um, in which Price is 100% like just a bad guy. 
Uh, but it's nice to have things like the Raven where you're just like, you know, this is silly. Let's make it silly. Let's go hard on the silliness. basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was trying to figure out what was the first Vincent Price film I saw. And um, I mean, I had seen him in the Batman series because he played Egghead in that. So I had seen him in that when I was a kid. But also, um, I think the first movie I actually saw him in was Edward Scissorhands in uh, 1990 i think that that's probably the first one for a lot of us it's definitely the the certainly the first time i was aware of him i may have seen the thriller video when i was very little (laughs) oh i definitely saw that but um but he's not like the the visual draw to that one so but yeah the first time i i can remember seeing him on screen was in uh, was in edwards in their hands and that's where it was so funny because there's like a reference to the bat in that movie and i never knew it until i mm-hmm. watched the bat this week <laughs> like oh wait <laughs> you know where that's from it's like that leonardo dicaprio gif of like pointing at the tv <laughs> wait a second <laughs> well and and edward scissorhands he has such a small part but it's so moving and effective and again it's going into that those elements that you know we were talking about that the seriousness with which he takes his roles mm-hmm. and and the pathos like there's there's a a depth even to that very short sequence that we get to that we get to see Vincent Price there's a depth to his character yeah um and and it's moving it's moving and it, it kind of sets up for the rest of the film mm-hmm. yep absolutely so any final thoughts on that uh, just that Vincent Price is a national treasure, and if you haven't watched any of his movies lately, you should. So many of them are available in so many places. Truly, yeah. A, a lot of the, like, House on Haunted Hill is available everywhere. Like, it's been in public domain prints for a very long time. It's always good if you can get a hold of Blu-ray versions, better copies. It's nice to actually see it, you know, in, in sharper sharper mm-hmm. images but um but yeah they're available everywhere several uh, are on prime a bunch are on uh 2b right now um i was surprised there wasn't a lot on criterion because there usually seems to be but um, i believe but that in lots of places. i believe that um uh the baron of arizona is on criterion which is technically i think his first leading like leading leading role hmm. um which is an interesting film. It is, I wouldn't necessarily say it's a great film, but he gives a very good performance in it. And um, it's one of those that it feels like it it's trying to make a character less villainous than he actually should be. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's an interesting film. It's directed by Samuel Fuller. Uh, I did want to end with a, a got a comment from uh, Sharon, who's my mother. Uh, and she says, it always makes me smile when I think that the actor whose roles scared the hell out of me when I was young uh, also loves cooking and had a cookbook out. <laughs> and we must say that Vincent Price was a gourmet chef. Mm-hmm. He loved cooking. He was. <laughs> gourmet chef and an art collector. And just like he really, you know, he really enjoyed life. And I, I think that we should take that away. From from any discussion of Price, we should always remember that you know he had a nice time being Vincent Price. Yeah, yeah. And why so, shouldn't and, he? <laughs> and he's left us so many wonderful films as well. So yes. happy birthday, Vincent Price! Uh, I think that that's going to close us out. Do you have any final thoughts before we go, Karen? Nope. Just watch more movies. 
as always. Uh, so thank you so much for listening to us and indulging us. Uh, so glad we got to talk about Price. I'm certain we will mention him again at some point. Um, and as always, we want to thank our lovely and wonderful patrons who include Ali, Brian, Connor, Estefania, Heather, James, Judy, Karen, Cariata, Matt, Michelle, Monty, Nanina, Robert, Robert, Steve, Sharon, and Tao. Thank you so much for continuing to support us. If you want to join our Patreon, we are patreon.com slash citizen dame. You get fun stuff, you get buttons and bonus episodes, you get the episodes early. Um, and and we are always really happy to hear from our patrons. So if you have a question, if you want, if there's something you would like to hear us talk about or something we mentioned that you want us to talk about more, feel free to send us a message and we're always happy to uh, to get responses from our lovely patrons. Um, we also do have our Zazzle store, zazzle.com slash citizen dame pod and a Ko-Fi account, ko-fi.com slash citizen dame. You can get in touch with us a multitude of ways. Our website is citizendamepod.com where we have reviews and editorials. Should be some Tribeca Festival uh, reviews coming up pretty soon, as soon as I figure out what the hell I'm doing there. Um, <laughs> And and I'm certain we're going to have a few more things coming up pretty soon. You can also get in touch with us via email, citizendamepod at gmail.com. And we are on various socials. We are still on Twitter. Twitter continues to survive despite all appearances. <laughs> uh, and Instagram at citizendamepod. And we are on our letterbox at citizendame. Do follow our letterbox. That is the best place to um, you know see our various lists, see our articles, etc. And probably going to be relying on that more and more, particularly given that Twitter continues to fragment and be terrible. Yes. Uh, so we are on Letterbox at Citizen Dame. And you can, of course, follow us individually and get in touch with us individually. Karen, where are you? I am on Twitter, sort of. Uh, Instagram and Letterbox at Karen M. Peterson. And I am on the various socials at LH Business. And that will close us out for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Francis Ashraf, professional assassin. Vivian Ashraf, blackmailer, harlot, murderess. She died in the madhouse. Captain David Ashraf, smuggler, slave trader. Mass murderer. Mr. Usher, I don't see that this has anything to do with Madeline and myself. I don't believe in the sins of the, the fathers being visited upon the children. You do not, sir? The house of Usher seems to you then normal, 